Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, where we bring you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into everything you're talking about in the game we all love. I mean, McGarry with me as always, a transfer guru is Duncan Castles. Coming up for you on today's podcast, we've got breaking and big news concerning Liverpool, Chelsea, Manchester United. Not just one player, not just two, but, well, you'll have to wait and see, won't you? But we're going to start with Timo Werner, probably, if not the hottest property in European football right now, certainly one of them, along with his Bundesliga colleague, Jadon Sancho. We're going to start with Werner Duncan because it's our information that... Uh, Werner has, as we have been reporting for some time now on the Transfer Window podcast, agreed personal terms on a contract with Liverpool on a five-year contract uh, that will pay the player around £140,000 per week. And that the uh, window, it's not uh, the case that this is a rescission clause in his contract. It's a window for negotiation with an agreed fee of sale of 60 million euros. That window opens every year of his contract at RB Leipzig from June the 1st to June the 15th. Curious enough, that's when the transfer window normally opens in Europe. Obviously, in the current pandemic situation we find ourselves in, that's not been the case, but it doesn't mean to say that Werner cannot be transferred during that window this summer. Now, it's been widely reported that Chelsea and Manchester United are interested in the player. Uh, Our information is that that's not the case. And the reason for that is that they believe and have been told by the players' representatives that a deal is effectively done to Liverpool and effectively they'd be wasting their time. The reason that these reports have been circulated is our information that Leipzig are concerned that they will not achieve the €60 million, which is currently running around £49.4 million in the commercial exchange rates uh, that uh, they could get for the player, who's 24, remember, and has scored 25 Bundesliga goals this season. Uh, And obviously that season now continues. Um, Liverpool have so far failed to offer the uh, the actual um, clause of the 60 million euros on the basis that they believe that player can be gotten for a smaller price when the market reopens officially and because obviously the economic climate in football has been much distorted and devalued by the current crisis with regards to the pandemic. Duncan, this has been going on for a long time, um, but during that time, fair play to Tim Werner. He has continued to score goals. He's continued to impress. And uh, we also understand that Jurgen Klopp has spoken to the player uh, via um, FaceTime stroke Zoom calls uh, on at least three occasions in the last two and a half months in order just to reassure him that he is very much still wanted by the club and he must sit tight and wait for them to agree the fee with his club. We've said it a lot on the podcast, Duncan, but Werner's a very good fit for Liverpool. And if they can get him for less than the uh, clause of 60 million euros, he would probably be a bargain as well. Yes, indeed, he is a fit. He's obviously a player they want to bring in. Um, and you now have this interesting scenario where, in normal circumstances, this would be the period in which Liverpool would have completed the deal. 60 million euros would be a fair price uh, in the old market for the player, and uh, and the terms would be sorted and, and it would be a, a straightforward transfer. But obviously the situation has changed. Werner is a player that's been watched by Chelsea, as we reported on the podcast a long time ago. Um, he was quite extensively scouted also by Manchester United. But the, the problem is that Liverpool have control because that's where the player wants to go. Um, therefore, you see them uh, trying to get a discount on the transfer fee um, in the the reasoning that that discounts will be available in this market. Um, I think interesting, there's there's basically a precedent being set 
by Mauro Icardi's um, full transfer from Inter to Paris Saint-Germain. Um, and it, it's, a, it's quite a strong precedent because Icardi was there on a loan with an option to buy. And he is now um, permanently uh, contracted to Paris Saint-Germain. And they managed to negotiate down the option to buy that they had agreed last summer by roughly 25%. Um, got a discount of around 20 million euros on the uh, the basic uh, fee before performance-related bonuses for the player. And that's um, obviously an affluent club, um, but a, a club in a league that has been hard hit by coronavirus because the league has been cancelled. The revenue from uh, those matches is not recoverable. It's gone, lost to the broadcasters. Um, and buying from uh, financially not uh, not a weak club and Inter uh, intend to do things in the market. They have to shift players around. They needed to get Icardi out because the player didn't want to be there and had, had burnt his boats. But they, they quite rapidly agreed that discount. And, and I think other major clubs around Europe will be looking at that and saying, well, there's a, there's a, a ballpark benchmark figure 25% discount on fees. Um, let's try and get them when we uh, move to buy players. Uh, the question, obviously, then for Leipzig becomes, can you generate the market, as Ian, you've explained that they're trying to do, to, to get your 60 million euros? If you can't, um, can you convince the player that... Uh, the appropriate resolution is for him to stay another year. Can you be uh, confident that the player will continue to perform for an entire year when he has set his heart on moving to Liverpool? And Liverpool have done all the groundwork to bring him here this summer. And, uh, and the only thing lacking is the final agreement on the fee. There's a phrase, Duncan, isn't there? A common phrase in uh, professional football um, where players, not just the one, the one who's moving, but his teammates, who obviously are party to that confidential conversation in the dressing room or et cetera, where uh, they ask the question, so are you staying or are you going? And if so, where are you going? And the phrase is, he's already a Liverpool player in his head. Uh, he sees himself in that shirt. Um, it was something which was said to me by uh, a member of Aidan Hazard's family um, the year before he transferred to Real Madrid when he had a verbal agreement with Chelsea that he would be allowed to leave for a reasonable fee at the end of that season. And the phrase was, he's already sees himself in that famous white shirt. Um, my information is that that's the case with Werner and Liverpool. I think it's no coincidence, Duncan, that Chelsea and Manchester United, the two clubs who have been uh, cited and circulated as possible suitors, the ones Leipzig hope to use as a um, leverage tool to get Liverpool to basically agree the 60 million euro buyout clause, have in the last three days re-signed their two strikers, or you could say second choice strikers, Olivier Giroud agreeing a new deal at Chelsea, and obviously Odino Gallo, who we reported last week in the podcast, very close to signing at Manchester City, has now indeed signed until January. Now, that tells you a lot, given that both clubs have first-choice strikers, in Chelsea's case, Tammy Abraham, and in Manchester United's, Anthony Martial. Um, these are the things that you, you look to in transfer stories, transfer information with regards to um, the likelihood of any given deal going through, whether it's one club or another, Duncan. Um, first thing I always ask myself when a, a player is quoted for a club is, OK, so where does he fit in? Now, there's no doubt in my mind that Werner would fit in in any club in England, but when you spend a lot of money renewing contracts of players who are over 30 to be second-choice strikers, and you've already got a first-choice striker, you're effectively saying, you know, we're out of this. We're not in the market for that player because we know he's going somewhere else. Yeah, and, and I think those are significant moves because we know that both Chelsea and Manchester United did not want um, Olivier Giroud and Odin Gallo as their first choice buys or, or signings 
um, or to be retained in their squad in January. Both of those clubs were trying to upgrade in those positions and significantly upgrade in those positions. Um, Igalo, as is well documented, was very much a last minute deal. Um, he was brought in when uh, Manchester United failed to do um, uh, and also quite late in the window attempt to, to sign Josh King from Bournemouth. Um, again, not the preferred option for, for Manchester United at, at that time. Um, but they have decided that Igalo will do um, as cover for the centre-forward position until January, um, which indicates that they want to save money um, to spend elsewhere. And I think it's exactly the same story with Chelsea. Um, there's no way Olivier Giroud is Frank Lampard's preferred option in that position. They had tried to do other deals. Um, Dries Mertens, obviously, one of the significant targets there. But um, I think a compromise is, has been agreed um, and money saved um, with this uncertainty over where revenues will be for next season, um, where budgets will be for the, the next um summer transfer window and uh, and priorities placed on, on other positions, which uh, I think we can discuss later in this podcast. Indeed we can, and, and more on Chelsea in um, just a few minutes. We're going to move on to the club, which seems to have the deepest pockets, or certainly the deepest credit rating <laughs> that's uh, of any club in the Premier League. Because Manchester United, Duncan, um, as you can reveal, have managed to um, put themselves even more in debt, but this time um, due to a monster overdraft rather than simple borrowing against assets. Please explain to us how the Bank of America is helping to fund not just United's incoming transfers, but also payments for players they've already bought. Yeah, this, this is what's termed in, in financial terms as a, a revolving credit facility and it's led by the Bank of America. There are a number of banks are involved in providing it. It is £150 million worth facility, which Manchester United have held for quite a long time. Um, importantly, it's at a very cheap rate um, because it's a, a long established loan. So they, they only pay um, between 1.25% and 1.75% um, over uh, the London Interbank borrowing rate, um, which is very low at present. So it is by a margin uh, cheaper than any of the loans that Premier League clubs are trying to secure um, at present um, to cover liquidity problems caused by COVID. And you, you're, you're talking about double digit rates um, being quoted for those loans. So Manchester United have a you know, commercial advantage there in that they have this outstanding facility that they're able to use. They say they've taken it, they've drawn down 140 million pounds of that facility as a precaution um, to increase their cash position, preserve uh, financial flexibility and maintain liquidity during the crisis. Now we talked um, a couple of podcasts ago about their last set of financial results, um, the substantial losses that they announced, and these were financial results until the end of March this year, so only really included two weeks of um, missing football um, because of COVID. Uh, and they reported you know, a loss of almost £23 million, um, substantial drops in broadcast and match day revenue, uh, they were estimating the damage um, caused by a rebate they would have to pay for Premier League broadcast rights at about £20 million. Um, their cash in the bank at that stage had gone down to £90 million, uh, which was more than £100 million less than the amount of cash reserves they had a year previously. So you could see from that that COVID was hitting them. and with another three months of no revenue from football, uh, at least another three months of no revenue from football um, predicted at that point, and United being taking one of the most 
you have to say, generous approaches to COVID in that they have retained all of their staff. Um, they haven't used furloughs, they're paying their staff in full. They're even paying um, match day staff, so temporary employees, uh, the full rate that they would do if they were using them for matches. And have put a lot of money into the community in terms of supporting NHS uh, and providing free meals, et cetera. You could see that they were going to start to hit some kind of liquidity concerns if they didn't do something about it. And that seems to be what they're doing here. They, they have they've taken this money down, cheap money, um, to cover themselves and to give them a degree of flexibility if they decide to go into the transfer market for a significant purchase um, this summer. Um, they... Again, if you go through their accounts, you'll see that they they spent more on transfers over the last financial year than they usually do. They basically, by their own description, they average a net spend of about 115 million pounds um, per year on transfer fee registrations, and they were guiding that that would go up to 173 million for this year, and that was before Bruno Fernandes was signed. So they they had substantial liabilities to look after, um, which still haven't been expended in full. Um, and there will be more payments to come at the end of this month. Um, but they're using this loan facility to give them scope. Now, the question then becomes how much of the loan facility are they prepared to spend in the market? Um, Egalo is very much uh, an indicator that they won't be signing a centre forward, that they've gone for a um, stopgap. I mean, they have only secured the player until uh, January for a start, so only for half a season, um, and, a, and a relatively cheap option. We know they want Jaden Sancho. Um, we know that they are probably the only club who are able to get close to the 100 million euro plus transfer fee that Borussia Dortmund want to sell the player this summer question mark becomes how much of that fee will they be prepared to spend this summer? Um, they will try and negotiate a discount with Dortmund uh, in, the, in the knowledge that other big clubs aren't going to go for the player. Are they prepared to, to meet the level that Dortmund will demand for the player to sell them this summer? Um, or will they just say, well, we're not going to spend over 100 million if you insist on 100 million and we'll wait for the player until next year um, because we don't think you've got any other buyer for him and uh, and we think we can convince him to come to us at a certain point of time. Also the case, Duncan, that the payments for the remainder of the fees for our um, Wan Bissaka and for Harry Maguire are due on June the 30th, as you made reference to. Those will total around £60 million um, as we understand it, having been made 50% up front to Crystal Palace and to Leicester City respectively. Um, that would, of course, not include the add-ons that United will pay for the Maguire transfer. The agreement with Leicester City was around 70 million plus 15 in add-ons, um, some of which have already been triggered uh, with regards to his England call-ups, etc. But those payments can be deferred, unlike the fee. Um, because the rule in England is that when you transfer between two Premier League clubs, you must pay the fee within one year of the signing, um, which is a rule which has stood for a long time in order to ensure the fair and equitable spread of money in the competition. Um, so that's going to be something they have to take into consideration with regards to the Sancho proposed move, Duncan. However, because Sancho's coming from the Bundesliga, they can do what well, all clubs do when they're buying players from uh, abroad. They can structure the payment of the transfer fee over the course of the player's contract. Uh, we saw it with um, Nicola Pepe's uh, move to Arsenal, where they're paying effectively one quarter of the fee per year of his contract. So actually, the £140 million that they've drawn down uh, from their loan facility will more than likely be enough and some for them to make a, well, I'd say a credible bid for Jadon Sancho because I don't think 100 million euros in this deflated market, you 
mentioned Mario Cardi's fee being uh, negotiated down by 25%. If you apply that to Santa, you're looking at 75 million euros, um, which is going to become around 66 million pounds. Um, if you spread that over a four or five year contract, then you're looking at only a 20 to 25 million pounds first payment uh, in this summer window coming. So actually, as far as United are concerned, their finances are looking pretty strong. I think I think they have a relative ad advantage here because they can go and do this deal now. And, uh, and the interesting thing is to see whether the Glazers will decide to deploy that advantage. In, in a normal market, you look at multiple clubs um, trying to buy Sancho. Um, he's, he's clearly a... Uh, is a player that's been identified by scouts across the board as someone who can be a leading figure for in European football for years to come. Therefore, you would have competition from a range of clubs. Liverpool like the player, but they are not prepared to, to pay that kind of transfer fee for him. Because of the, what's happened with COVID, Manchester United find themselves in a position where they could do the deal this summer. Um, whereas others have removed themselves from trying to do the deal. Now, Sancho, we know, wants to go to a club that has Champions League football. At this stage, Manchester United can't guarantee that for next season. Um, therefore, again, being the only club that are, are capable of putting down a large transfer fee for him this summer, maybe allows them to override that concern. Even if they don't make Champions League fo football, they can convince him to come, but will the Glazers be prepared to spend the majority of their um, the, the liquid cash that's available to them on one player of that type? Um, in many ways, he fits two sort of competing Manchester United transfer strategies, the new one of, of buying younger players um, and uh, building a squad with long-term development potential, and the old Woodward model of buying the superstar player, the, the guy who has big commercial value. You're, you're talking about in Jaden Sancho, if he continues to put up the numbers he's done in the Bundesliga this season. And there's a question mark over whether, whether this is an outlier season for him. A lot of analysts will say actually that the numbers he's got are, are above what he should be doing in terms of his, his performance on the field if you use X. G or um, expected assist models, but he is in that category of commercially valuable player and in the new category of young um, long-term prospects. So he ticks two of those transfer strategy boxes for Manchester United, which again would suggest go forward and, uh, and do the deal. And you're right, because they're buying from Europe, they can go back to their old strategy um which and, and they have had a tendency to to buy players in an, on installments and have substantial amounts of transfer fees due in upcoming years so that the last set of accounts they had um 187 million pounds worth of um payments still to to make on on registrations um and they were expecting to have to make another 60 million um, for the in the 2021 season again, this is before Bruno Fernandes was was added to uh, that setup. Um, so I think it, it it's a very interesting deal to to watch and to get a, a sense of how much the Glazers are prepared to commit to the strategy that Ed Woodward has made great public playoff. Um, the 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 change and the, the supposed long-term planning and the build around Uli um, Gunnar Solskjaer's transfer um, and coaching model. Um, and so Sancho is a player that fits that, and he's also in a position where they, they absolutely um, need to strengthen. They can play him off the right wing. Um, but will the Glazers put down the money in this window that will satisfy Borussia Dortmund and get them to agree a fee to allow him to come to Old Trafford.
Well, as we've discussed um, many times on the transfer over the last few weeks, and of course you will all be familiar with it, um, given the downturn economically, not just in football, but generally, obviously, in the socio-economic status of the world, um, we do expect transfer fees and contracts for that matter to be reduced in the coming uh, years and months, for sure, in terms of what footballers are paid and what is paid for them. And Jaden Sancho, I doubt, will be any exception to that. I suspect as well, Duncan, without being too cynical, the Glazers might have had one eye on the um, director's fees and dividends that they are due when um, drawing down the cash <laughs> from the Bank of America. Yes, they haven't. Yes, they haven't shown any sign of uh, stopping paying themselves large directors' yes. fees and dividends, and um, that does require cash in the Old Trafford coffers for it to be re redirected into the Glazers' wallets. What's what's the what's the opposite of furloughed? <laughs> How can you be unfurloughed or overly furloughed? I think that might. <laughs> We should, we should really ask, maybe we should talk to Brian and Avram about that, see what they say. Young English players most definitely um, have been and continue to be the flavour of football in the Premier League. Um, and Chelsea linked with a interest and boo for Leicester City's left-back Ben Chilwell. It's our understanding um, that the interest is very much concrete. Leicester City are aware of it. And the player himself um, has explained his situation to manager Brendan Rodgers with regards to his ambitions, etc., etc. While Rodgers is keen not to lose the player, um, the player himself is very attracted by a move to Stamford Bridge. One of the reasons for that um, on both sides of this particular deal is Ashley Cole. Arguably, and I would certainly agree with it, even though having given him three out of ten for one of his best performances <laughs> in an England shirt, uh, because he is one of the best left backs of the modern era. And Ashley Cole, uh, we understand, highly rates Chilwell and thinks he has all the natural attributes to make a, an elite player in that defensive position that he excelled in himself. So, what happens now? Well, Leicester will not want to lose him. But they did lose Harry Maguire. Uh, it went to, obviously, the last couple of weeks of the transfer window last summer. But we understand that in reference to Chilwell's future, Leicester are being reasonable and practical and pragmatic. And they're looking um, at potential replacements. One of those, probably unsurprisingly, Duncan, is a former charge of Brendan Rodgers when he was manager at Celtic, and that's Kieran Tierney. More surprisingly, you'd have to say, is that Tierney has only been one season at Arsenal, a season which has yet to be included. He's been very unlucky with injury. Um, however, uh, maybe maybe that uh, lack of luck and the um, potential to return as uh, under the tutelage of Rodgers, uh, under whom he excelled at Parkhead, might be enough to turn his head with regards to making a change and maybe Arsenal might decide that they want to just get their money back for a player who has obviously not played very much or indeed reached the heights of performance that they were hoping for when they bought him for £25 million from the Scottish champions. First of all, Duncan, I want to ask you, is Chilwell the right guy for Chelsea? Um, Frank Lampard certainly so far in his first season has rotated left-backs, um, although my personal opinion is Marcus Alonso has, has been very, very good generally um, in that position. But he has definitely changed it around and uh, Chilwell may be seen by Lampard as being the permanent rather than the rotational left-back. And also to get your views, obviously, on Tierney. Well, look, Lampard has, has wanted um, improvements at left-back. Um, Alonso is now um, he's going to turn 30 uh, this year. So you could see a situation where they allow Alonso to leave or, to, or, or sell him uh, in this window and replace with younger English option. Um, 
And I think Chilwell's a better defensive option than, than Alonso, as well as being a good attacking player. So there, there, is, a, there is a fit there. Um, I think it's important to consider that Brendan Rodgers, when he was entering Leicester City and looking at last summer's transfer market, Chilwell was a player he was prepared to let go. He felt he could secure a substantial transfer fee for him. And if he did, um, the player he had in mind to purchase was Kieran Tierney. Obviously, neither of those things happened. Tierney went to Arsenal instead. Um, and as you say, Tierney has, uh, has struggled through injury um, with the managerial changes at Arsenal as well. Made just 11 um, appearances for them so far, just five in the Premier League. So when you're looking at a player who has struggled in that first season like that, um, was uh, bought for a substantial fee. Um, he is at a club which has money problems. Um, they do need they need to make changes to their squad, and uh, they need to find revenue to do that. So, in normal circumstances, you would say no chance of of, a, of getting a player from Arsenal who'd been bought a substantial fee and brought in as part of the the last and most recent rebuild, but perhaps in these circumstances, a deal would be viable um, for Leicester. And, uh, and I think it fits with, with Brendan Rodgers' assessment of the players and the way he has pragmatically looked at his squad at the past. And um, you know, Harry Maguire is a great example here. Um, Rodgers saw that deal shaping up, saw that Manchester United were going to overpay for the player, both in terms of transfer fee and wages, and therefore it was essentially impossible to hold on to him um, and, uh, and allowed the club to, to work the situation to their, their, their financial advantage, which they very much did. And I think also to their sporting advantage, because they ended up with a better centre-back combination, a more effective centre-back combination um, than they had when Maguire was in the team. Um, so, I, one thing's for sure with Brendan Rodgers, he has no uh, shortage of confidence in his own abilities as a coach and as a, a judge of all areas of management. So if he believes he can uh, improve matters and improve his team overall by allowing Chilwell to go to Chelsea for a substantial fee, then he will push that line hard. Let's kind of they go a little bit under the radar, Duncan, in terms of um, their effectiveness in the market. Um, obviously, Southampton were a standout example of a club who recruited players um, either from their academy or at very low um, transfer fees and sold them for very high ones. But in this you know, last year or so, uh, Leicester City have sold Riyad Mahrez to Manchester City and Harry Maguire to Manchester United for huge fees compared to what they recruited them for. And despite the fact they have very generous uh, owners uh, in the family um, uh, who run the club, they have a lot of, you won't see them go to the Bank of America for an overdraft because they've got the bank so much money having not, you know, well, that's spent some of it, of course, but um, I think, you know, we, we should give credit to Leicester City in terms of the way they performed, apart from anything else. I know they've fallen away a little bit uh, uh, in terms of their Premier League challenge, and the last sort of three months of the season, while it was before it was suspended, but still, the transfer record is very, very impressive. They've had failures, but um, yeah, they. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> they, I mean, I think if you talk to Leicester fans about some of the purchases, they wouldn't be entirely impressed with all of them. But in the round, they've they've improved their squad. There's a reason why Brendan Rodgers wanted to go there. He saw that they had a, a a squad with a lot of talent across the first 11 uh, at a good age who could play the football he wanted to play. Um, uh, building a new training ground, uh, rich backers. Um, you know They've also managed to sell Danny Drinkwater to Chelsea for a very substantial fee, which has to be a, a major success in anyone's books. They took good money for N'Golo Conte, and although their hands were were kind of tied with that one. But yes, they they know what they're doing um, when it comes to uh, 
in the round in, in terms of uh, structuring their squad in a way that uh, not only um, generates cash, but also has produced um, excellent performances on the field and, and the potential. You have to say, in, in, in these circumstances where you're going to have big discounts in the market, where Leicester already have a strong squad and will be in a better financial condition than a lot of their competitors, the potential to go further still. And they should have Champions League football if the Champions League is played next season. They should have Champions League football and the revenue that comes from that to add um, to what they already have. You said there, Duncan, if the Champions League is played, I mean, we're assuming that's going to be the case. We're also assuming, of course, that the Premier League will restart two weeks as of Thursday of this week. That's tomorrow, as we're recording on Wednesday. However, the Premier League uh, shareholders, or stakeholders as they like to be called, meet on Thursday, and there is a fairly hefty agenda in front of them because they have yet to agree terms on several major points which um, the restart requires, uh, some of which we can just quickly list, one uh, being a number of substitutes in games, another being size of squads, another being um, the particular rules uh, in terms of what happens. And this is probably the key one, Duncan, if they have to postpone matches because of a mass infection in one club. Currently, as we reported in the podcast last week, they don't have a contingency plan or indeed a guideline for how many players must be absent before they can postpone a fixture uh, if one club is affected in that way. Um, but probably just as important, if not more, is if the league is forced to shut down again for any reason due to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, they don't know how they're going to resolve league positions and of course, that means relegation and European places. Now, it's our understanding that in the 14 days that they have to agree and make this work, all 20 clubs have to agree to a written legal document, which will be drawn up by the Premier League's lawyers. It will be passed to the clubs themselves, who of course will pass it to their legal counsel, and then they have to um, respond within a limited time with questions or queries, including proposals for any changes, which would then have to go back and forward to all 20 clubs. And then all 20 clubs must sign it off. And it has to be approved. This all has to be done before June the 17th, because that's when they intend to restart. So everyone has to agree on all of the terms and we're talking about major issues here, not just small ones, with regards to how things will work in this circumstance or that one. One of the other things that they have hanging over their heads is, as of June 17th, now that that has been the agreed restart date, the clubs will be liable for £1.6 million per day for every club in rebate broadcasters if they don't play. So... Talk about having a gun to your head, Duncan, in terms of the financial aspects of this. They're also, I mean, one sports lawyer, a special sports lawyer, when I was asking him about this, said to me, this is the kind of situation that if you find yourself in, in a mergers and acquisition situation, you would require at least three months to get this kind of agreement in place. They're trying to do it in two weeks. Have they got any chance? I think there's two major aspects to this one is the health side and that's what as we, as we discussed since this protocol was introduced what do you do if you start to get transmission um, coming from external sources into a squad um, as has happened in the championship this week so we've seen Preston North End who had um, their, their striker uh, Jaden Stockley um, test positive for COVID uh, last week and was then sent to self-isolate and then they've now found that uh, yesterday they found that a second player within their squad had tested positive and now a decision has to be made as to whether they just send that second player um, to self-isolate as would be the guidance coming from the Premier League that would be the Premier League's um, 
working model at present if he was a Premier League player that the second player would go into seven days isolation or do they put the whole squad into 14 days quarantine to ensure that everyone uh, is clear of COVID and it can't spread internally any further but if they do obviously that miss, that means 14 days um, contact training missed and essentially they would almost have to go directly into the restart date or the, the um, planned restart date for the championship uh, without any proper training, which is clearly a huge disadvantage for a team that is in the playoff places and uh, and hoping to secure a, a playoff place and, and the opportunity to be promoted into the Premier League. So that, I think, it is central from a health perspective. Um, and as you say, they, they don't, there, there's no clear guideline on what clubs should do and how many players would have to be infected before matches are postponed. Obviously, the Premier League and the Championship are reluctant to postpone games because they want to get this finished as quickly as possible, to get it finished in full if they can and get it finished as quickly as possible to avoid um, paying those rebates uh, to the broadcasters. I think the bigger issue, though, in this debate is what you do if you fail to complete, if that, that worst case scenario happens and um, the, the spread of COVID within squads uh, prevents the project restart from working effectively and they have to abandon uh, the Premier League midway through its second part of the season, if you like. Because then you get into this issue of do you relegate sites? And there are still a number of Premier League clubs who want to say no relegation this season. Um, the integrity of the league is shot. It's unfair to relegate in these circumstances. Therefore, we, we play out to satisfy the broadcasters, but nobody goes down. Um, and if, you, if they cannot get that guarantee of, of security, then you have the decision of what mechanism do you use to decide who is relegated? whether it's the points per game model, whether it's the standings as they are when, when the, the league has to stop, whether it's some kind of modified points per game model. And obviously the debate over that is going to be extensive because nobody knows how many games they're going to be able to play. Um, and cl clubs want to give themselves as strong a possibility as they can of reaching a Champions League place or staying in the division. Um, it's, yeah, as you say, it's a huge thorny problem. It's the problem that's been predominant throughout this process of argument and debate over how you restart uh, and what you do to get the Premier League playing again. And although we have all this, you know, publicity about the teams going back to training and contact training happening and a, and a start date now um, set out, those fundamental problems haven't been resolved yet. Um, and the fundamental arguments, as you say, have to be resolved. And you've got these legal issues um, with all the club's lawyers wanting to look at the detail um, to decide and recommend to their um, uh, employers. Uh, whether they should sign off on the deal and whether they're, they're, they are covered uh, by that deal in, in a fashion that's, uh, that has those, those each club's best interests at heart. It, you know, this is not, this is not a, a setup where everyone is, is pulling in the same direction. It hasn't been from the start. Um, it, I don't think it's got any closer to being like that. And I'm not sure how easy it's going to be to ever get all of these 20 clubs pulling in the same direction for a, for a finish to the league season. And not just 20, Duncan, because we have the added complication, and it's no small one, of the EFL and the Championship and the issue of promotion to the Premier League, which, of course, we know is worth so much financially. Um, and I think you and I have both had conversations with people in uh, those clubs and leagues with regards to how they feel about being excluded uh, potentially from the Premier League talks with regards to how the season might end should they have to shut it down again. Now, there's no legal obligation on the Premier League's part to include the EFL, nor the clubs in the EFL who would be most affected. And at that point, you'd have to argue 
that the top six in the championship, but certainly Leeds United and Wolves, would be uh, uh, those who are most affected. Now, they could still challenge legally any agreement the Premier League sign off, should it mean that they do not achieve promotion even if they finish their season, which is now scheduled to restart on June the 20th. So this is just a spider's web of, of, of you know, different issues, self-interest, and also, um, you know, people not actually knowing how to resolve it. Well, the, the, the information I have is that the EFL's priority is to ensure there is promotion into the Premier League, that they get three of their clubs up into the Premier League at the end of the season, whenever it ends, however it ends. They're not, I'm told, particularly bothered about three coming down and would be prepared to compromise on that as long as they have the guarantee of three going up. Whether the FA accept that's a different matter. And remember, the FA have a, a, a kind of golden share vote over this and that any change to promotion and relegation and structure of the top league has to be signed off by the FA. But interestingly to me is that the, the EFL seem to be amenable to the idea of a 23-team Premier League next season, as long as they get their three teams up, because that, that satisfies um, the key points of legal challenge that they may suffer from the clubs who fail um, to go up should um, the Premier League refuse to let them have promotion. I think the other thing that's interesting that I'm hearing about the Championship is that there's no real internal consensus within the championship clubs as to the best way to resolve their season. And it's actually quite common sense if you think about it. Um, but it, again, it's driven by self-interest. So if you were to say to, for example, Leeds United and um, uh, Brentford, that in the given circumstances, we just finished the championship as it was and went straight to promotion and playoffs, then those clubs would be happy to take their guaranteed promotion in Leeds United's case and in Brentford's case a place in the playoffs without having to go through the risks of uh, finishing off the current campaign and, and in Leeds' case per perhaps getting knocked out of the automatic promotion places and in Brentford's case missing out on the playoffs places. So you've got a, a group at the top end, who, who I'm told do not want to rush back to playing simply because the Premier League um, is intending to start playing again this month. They are suggesting that they should take more time over this. They should make sure that they are clear of COVID infections. They should have a longer training period to avoid injuries um, when they return. Um, the key thing is, in their view, that promotion is decided in time for the start of the next Premier League season. And if the championship season has to run a bit longer um, for its final resolution than the Premier League season, uh, that's fine in their book. After all, that's what they do uh, in normal circumstances. And uh, the only deficit for them would be they would have less of a, of a recovery period between the end of the championship season and the start of the next Premier League season for the promoted clubs, but they're, they're prepared to accept that. I think interestingly, though, is that the divergence of opinion within the Championship over when they should play and how they should play. So um, just as we have these issues of debate in the Premier League um, over the, the structure of the ending of the season and the methods that should be used to decide if we don't manage to play all the games, there's also a debate in the championship, uh, but it works in a different way because different clubs have different priorities and uh, the broadcast money isn't as important in the championship club's reckoning as is the, the potential to reach the, the, the dream and, and the big money that's involved in being promoted to the Premier League. We're going to round off this Transfer Window podcast with our Heroes and Villains segment. You might think there are many, many candidates in both sides, and you'd probably be right, but only room for two, or maybe more than two. Duncan, I'm going to ask you to name your villain first before I go for heroes. I think, uh, I think the villain this week is 
the young Manchester City player Phil Foden, who um, managed to not only get involved in a game of beach football with a group of strangers uh, on a Merseyside beach this week, he also then posed for photographs with them um, in close proximity. Obvious risks in terms of bringing the virus into the Manchester City team camp, um, highlighting the problems with the restart protocol in that you can test the players as much as you like and ensure that they are um, clear of COVID at this point. Um, but if one of the players goes and catches the disease from an external source and brings it into the squad, you're not going to be aware of that infection for at quickest 48 hours from the, the next test, which allows 48 hours for that player to spread COVID amongst his teammates. And we now have you know contact training back in force in the Premier League. And from what I'm hearing, um, training protocols of some of the clubs, at least, are not so different now in terms of what they're doing on the training field from normal circumstances. So you, you, there is substantial contact and interaction between the players and there is scope for transmission of COVID player to player if someone picks it up um, while, uh, while away from his club. In the words of the Prime Minister, Duncan, at least he wasn't visiting a lover. <laughs> or having an eye test. Or indeed, one of those. Um, my hero is going to be heroes of this week. I'm not going to name any one individual. I want to um, just point out that there have been many, many football players, and I know many sportsmen and, and many people around the world who have spoken out in support of Black Lives Matter and against the killing of George Floyd in the USA in a very brutal way by a policeman. Um, I want to just point out that football players are often criticised for being anodyne and um, super cosseted in terms of the replies and their, um, the things they say on these things. Uh, these matters, very important matters, um, because it's governed by social media advisors and agents and all the rest. But I think there have been very, very sincere and personal messages um, put out by many, many footballers, which we should appreciate and take them at their worth. So my heroes of the week are all those who've done that um, and keep up that protest. If you want to continue the debate after the podcast, please do. All the regular social media channels, which of course are at Transfer Podcast Handle on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Duncan is at Duncan Castles. I'm at Garbo SJ. Please interact. And if you enjoyed the podcast, as always, jump on to iTunes, give us a five-star review, let the community thrive. And let's hope that we can all thrive in the coming weeks and months in these difficult times. We will be back later this week. Until then, stay safe and be well. And thanks for listening.